You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual It's Halloween in a couple of days. I've hammered away at the slutty, slutty costumes and happy heteroween and how Halloween's the straight pride parade for a few years now. So I'm just going to leave that aside. We don't need to talk about that. Although I've noticed, uh, gotta say this, I've noticed some slut shaming going on where people are talking about slutoween and really putting down anyone who would dare to wear a slutty, slutty Halloween costume out in public because that's what she or he wants to do. And a lot of these same sort of bloggers and blogs where people praise, you know, the slut parade and, you know, people having sexual agency and sex workers and people being free to be whoever they want to be are turning around and saying, of course, anybody who would do that on this one day in this mass produced corporate costume made by slave labor in China is being the wrong kind of slut or is doing slut wrong. Um, and I think that's kind of Halloween shaming, Halloween slut shaming. I think you should do whatever the fuck you want to do on Halloween and wear whatever the fuck you want to wear. I think you should ask yourself, is this what I want to wear or was I programmed to want to wear this? But just because somebody's going to run out in a slutty costume on Halloween, we don't have to slut shame that person anyway. We should slut somebody, shame somebody who went to the slut parade in the exact same degree of revealingness costume-wise. I said I wasn't going to talk about Halloween, I, but I, I wasn't going to talk about heteroween and slutty costumes because I've been hammering away at that forever, including for like the last two minutes. Um, but I was going to talk about the spookiest place I've ever been just for Halloween. Uh, you know, people talk about haunted houses. There's a huge old Victorian house on my block, uh, a, f- a few blocks away from my house. It's been abandoned for years. It's all boarded up and it looks very creepy. But that doesn't uh, – that's not creepy. That doesn't fill me with horror. What fills me with horror or what creeps me out, there's nothing quite as creepy as a big – soulless, corporate, empty hotel that you have all to yourself. It's a little bit like The Shining, not as atmospheric, not as gorgeous as that old hotel. But I was at a hotel in Calgary, Alberta a few years ago and it was deserted. I walked in and there was nobody there. There was one receptionist and I looked at her and said, wow, not a busy time of year. And she looked at me and said, you are our only guest this evening. Like, really? I have the whole hotel all to myself? She's like, Yes. And I looked over and there's a bartender standing in the bar. I'm like, there's a bartender just for me? Yes. And there's like a kitchen. And they're making food or waiting around. And it's like, that's just for me? So if I say I'm going to bed and I don't want anything to eat or drink, you're going to send them home? Yes. And as I sometimes do when I travel on the road, I sometimes have trouble sleeping. So I carry particular lozenges. I won't go into detail about those particular lozenges, but they help me sleep and they help me lay waste to the mini bar, if you follow me. And so I had a particular lozenge and then I couldn't sleep and I began to wander the empty corporate soulless hotel from pool on the roof to gym to every floor I visited and walked every floor and I went down to the bar and I made the bartender make me one drink and I ordered one appetizer and then I said goodnight to the receptionist and wandered this hotel for hours because I couldn't sleep. And it was the creepy – and I creeped myself out. Eventually, I couldn't go to sleep because I kept sensing I am all alone. And really, walking around that hotel that night, I got the sense that you know regular horror stuff, horror houses, Victorian houses, the psycho house up on the hill, that kind of creepy Victoriana ain't creepy anymore and hasn't been creepy for a long time. What's creepy now is this soulless corporate – beige and brown crap that litters the landscape. You're in this hotel 
in Calgary that could be in San Francisco or Wyoming or anywhere. You could be you're, – you're nowhere and everywhere at once. It is like being in a kind of limbo, being in a kind of nothing and nowhere. It's a kind of death to be trapped in a big soulless corporate hotel all night long on a particular lozenge all by yourself. So if I was trying – if I were you and I wanted to get creeped out this Halloween, I would go to the Ramada Inn. I wouldn't go to the haunted house. But anyway, we have lots of calls to get to and no particular lozenges on me today. But lots of calls. So we're going to get right to them. On the show today, Dr. Sidney and Justin McElroy of the Sawbones podcast, which is about archaic medical treatments. And they're going to come on and talk to us about how we used to treat sexually transmitted infections. And I hope you're sitting down for that. And in the Magnum podcast today, Caitlin Doty of Ask a Mortician fame is going to answer some of your sex questions because Caitlin, founder of the Order of the Good Death, isn't just smart about death and mortician shit. She's smart about everything. Wait till you hear this interview. Your calls after this. And now your calls. Hey, Dan. I was calling about a relationship I started about four months ago following my the end of my 15-year marriage. I reconnected with a high school girlfriend who herself has a marriage that's on the outs. Her husband has stopped finding her attractive, and they have separated uh, and have lived apart for a year and a half but have not yet divorced. After four months of a really good relationship, everything's great. Both parties GGG. I am tired of living a lie and being the secret hidden boyfriend. And I have tried to persuade her to pursue her divorce. And her husband is dragging his feet. And I gave her an ultimatum that, you know, by the end of October, if she hadn't filed for divorce yet, that I was going to, you know, take a break from our relationship and not be in a relationship with her until she could follow through on her divorce. Is that too fast, too soon? Am I pushing too hard? Divorce is a complicated, messy, and often protracted business. Only in film and television is divorce, I, I don't know, like coming out. You just have to say the word out loud and then you're magically divorced. Just say you're gay and then you're gay. Uh, divorce takes some time and there's legal issues and property to divide. And if there are children involved, there's child custody negotiations to hammer out. And if someone is economically dependent on the other, there's – alimony and if somebody is dependent on the other for health care coverage, that can be a reason that people who are married will stay married and live separately. If the divorce is amicable and you don't want to see your partner without any health insurance coverage, you're, you're the wife you're leaving or the husband that you're divorcing, you don't want to see them suffering needlessly uh, or suffering on top of the suffering that they're already enduring because of the breakdown of the marriage, uh, that might be a very good reason for somebody not just to rush to the lawyer's office. There are people out there who've separated. Their marriages are for all intents and purposes, over, but they have remained married so they can continue in a way to look out for each other and take care of each other because there's still some bedrock affection there, whatever brought them together in the first place. I don't know what the situation is with this woman that you've been dating and her one day future ex-husband but currently separated from still married to man, husband, whatever. Uh, I do know that four months – is a little too soon for you to be dictating terms to this woman. Four months, 16 weeks, that is too soon for you to be blowing in and saying, you're doing this divorce all wrong. Your timetable for your divorce isn't satisfying me and my timetable for our relationship. Back the fuck off, chill the fuck out, calm the fuck down. People who are divorcing are 
pretty vulnerable often emotionally, particularly if she didn't initiate the divorce. Sounds like she might have. Even then, it can be difficult to really put that capstone on the marriage, to, to, to call the lawyers, to, to make it officially over. That can be a high bar for people to clear and nobody wants to feel bullied or badgered or hustled along to that point. She's on her way there. They have separated. They no longer live together. Eventually, they will cut that legal tie. If you had been with her for four years and this was still going on, I think then you would be in a position to say, come on, time. It's time. You need to make this official. We need to – perhaps you and I should be thinking of marriage. But at four months, you and she should not be thinking of marriage. At four months, you throwing down this kind of an ultimatum may make her wonder if you're someone that she wants to be involved with at all. She's getting out of one unsatisfying relationship with one dude who perhaps he was demanding, perhaps he bullied her, perhaps I don't know what the issue was. You don't lay them out for me. But she is unlikely to want to rush into another relationship with someone who is husband-like going to dictate terms or believe that he has the right to dictate terms to her at four months, 16 weeks. Chill the fuck out, back the fuck off, give her the time and space and love and support that she needs to wind down her marriage at her own pace. If this is still going on two years from now, then you can issue an ultimatum. In the meantime, shut your mouth. Hi, Dan. I listened with interest to your conversation about the importance of coming out as a bisexual in episode 362, which made me wonder, would you consider a woman i.e. me, in her early 40s, who had a long, a year-long intense sexual relationship with another woman during her freshman year of college, but has never repeated such sexual contact with another woman and has basically been only with men the rest of her life uh, to be bisexual. You're trying to get me in trouble. This is one of those calls where I think it's a plant. Someone's just trying to get me in trouble because I'm always accused of being biphobic. But You know, I've always said for years, and I believe this to be true, that sexual identity, there's an element of choice. There's who you want to do, who you are doing, and then what you tell people. Think of it as a layer cake, three layers. The bottom layer is who you want to fuck, middle layer is who you are fucking, top layer is then what you tell people, how you identify yourself sexually. And the the point of identifying yourself sexually, the point of having a label is to communicate the essential and crucial truths about who you are. Now, to say that someone who hasn't had sex with – uh, a same-sex partner in 20 years despite having had a year-long relationship in college, to say that you're not bi anymore, to suggest that your bisexuality can expire is like saying to somebody who's straight or gay, who's been celibate or you know sexless for 10, 15, 20 years, that they're not really straight or gay, that you have to be fucking to keep your gay or straight bona fides. Nobody says that to gay or straight people. You can be gay and go 20 years without sex and still be gay. But we do sometimes say to bi people – Not we, not me. No, no, no. Some people say to bi people that if you're not actively pursuing folks of both genders or if it's been decades since you slept with somebody of of the same sex, that you're not really bi anymore, that your bisexuality has somehow expired. It's not true. Your bisexuality has not expired. You are indeed, from the sound of things, bisexual. You are just partnered with an opposite sex partner, which seems to happen quite a lot because of the odds and other stuff. Now, what do you tell people though? 
you know, if you, you – I think you can legit identify as straight if that's more accurately reflects who you're doing even if it's a little bit of a gloss on who you'd like to do, that bottom layer. Just like there's a lot of lesbian identified bisexual women out there in the world. There's a lot of women who identify as lesbians, who are in the lesbian community or in lesbian relationships who are actually and admittedly not hiding it from anybody, bi. And they will tell you I'm a lesbian identified bi. Ta-da, ta-da. So you can be a straight identified bi yourself. If there can be lesbian identified bi people in the world. You can certainly be a straight identified bi person if that's what you want. But it hurts the side. You know, let's down lesbian, gay, bi and trans people who are out because the more people who know they know people who are queer, the less fear and hatred and bigotry and stigma there is attached to being queer. And there are a lot of people out there who know bisexual people but they just don't know they know them because so many fewer bi's are out compared to – gays and lesbians. So I would encourage you to be out. And yes, you are still bi. You know, if a dump truck runs over your husband today and you're back on the dating market, it sounds like you could wind up in a same-sex relationship because that's not something that you're opposed to or grew out of. It wasn't a phase for you. It's just you wound up in an opposite-sex relationship. What are the odds? And here you are. But I think if you are more comfortable telling people that you are straight, even though you're kind of letting down the side, you should be able to do that just like a lot of Lesbian-identified bisexual women are more comfortable telling people that they're lesbian because that's the, their, their primary identity. That's where their heart is for the moment and where your heart is for the moment right now may be straight land. But if you can be out as bi, if you feel bi in your bones, I think you should say bye. Bye. Because Halloween is coming up. We want to scare people and there's really sometimes no better way to scare people than with some facts, not with you know stories about monsters and demons and goblins who don't exist, but shit that people have done or did do to each other in any field, but particularly the medical field. Joining us now to scare you with some medical history is Dr. Sidney and Justin McElroy, hosts of the medical history podcast Sawbones. Every week you guys take a different topic and discuss what medicine got wrong. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, and the answer, as it turns out, is pretty much everything forever uh-huh. until like five years ago. We started <laughs> figuring things out. We were just kind of doing stuff for a while. Just taking yeah, shots. We've never tried that before. Yeah, why not? Give it a shot. So it was just trial and error for centuries and centuries and centuries. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, if it caused any response, even if that was pain, we figure, well, it was doing something. <laughs> Especially if you're an oppressed minority over the years. We, we really, mm. we really suck it to them. Boy, now, howdy. Uh, let's talk about sexually transmitted infections because we cover those a lot on the show. Uh, we have some effective treatments now. We're in a bit of a panic because uh, drug resistant strains of gonorrhea are kicking around and we need to come up with new antibiotics and blah, blah, blah. But we were really shit out of luck for centuries, particularly when it came to syphilis which arrived in Europe from North America in 1494. What was the treatment until the mid-20th century for syphilis? Well, for syphilis, I mean, it was very common. And so we would try a lot of different things. But the most fashionable treatment for just about anything at the time was mercury. So it became the most popular treatment for syphilis. And and mercury kills you. Yes. (laughs) Eventually. Not instantly, but eventually, yes. And so did syphilis. So it was sort of a race between the syphilis and the mercury to see what would kill you faster. We just wanted to torture you with mercury before we killed you with syphilis. Right. And what Um, if syphilis itself was so pleasant? We figured, hey, (laughs) let's add a layer. What would mercury do? Why why did doctors think mercury was uh, an effective or even uh, plausible treatment for syphilis? Well, putting a lot of mercury on, on skin could definitely damage the skin. So you would see maybe the initial chancre that appears with syphilis uh, change or disappear because you're creating so much other damage. 
Uh-huh. Um, it would be different. One, one of my favorite methods, because they just literally just put mercury on the skin, but they also would do something called fumigation, where they would put a patient in like a big box with just their head sticking out, and then fill the box with mercury and light a fire underneath. I'm sitting here with my jaw in my lap. What, what, <laughs> what? It's so that you would absorb the mercury fumes the most effectively. And that's, then, actually, that's actually how raves were invented. <laughs> a lot of people don't. And then when you died of mercury poisoning, they would go, shame about the syphilis that killed <laughs> the dude. Was, it was The great thing about this method is it was the least effective and also the most uncomfortable. So there you go. W- were the treatments for gonorrhea any more effective prior to the arrival of antibiotics? No, not at all. We again, uh, we tried mercury for that too, but we also got um, creative with silver. Uh, colloidal silver was a product that you could buy from bear, as in bear aspirin. Wait, wait, colloidal silver? Colloidal silver. What does that mean, colloidal? Uh, like in a, in a colloid form, like a kind of liquid state. Uh-huh. And, and you would just, you could inject it into the urethra. Nope. <laughs> no, no, thank you. I'll take my gonorrhea. Uh, there was also a great, uh, we talked once about patent medicines, which were kind of like fake medicines that people just advertised really well. Mm-hmm. And there was one called Gono, which was made specifically for gonorrhea. And it was uh, billed as an unequaled remedy for all unnatural discharges. Now, now, syphilis and gonorrhea are real diseases and they make people really uncomfortable. And they do, you know, syphilis will kill you dead and gonorrhea will leave you sterile and it can make urinating insanely painful. Uh, so those were real problems and, you know, doctors were doing the best they could to figure out what the fuck they could possibly do about it, including kill you with mercury. But they also treated masturbation, medicine did, forever as an illness and a sickness. Yes, absolutely. And what was the the best available medical advice about masturbation, you know, 300 years ago and also last week in Utah? Uh, Well, I I, I don't know about last week in Utah. I know that um, one of the biggest um, opponents of masturbation was, um, have you heard of Kellogg? (laughs) Cornflakes treated masturbation. Absolutely. So how, did that, could, how did that work? Any better than mercury for a syphilis? Uh, no. You could, you could make people's uh, libidos disappear by giving them really bland foods like cornflakes. Uh, so that's one treatment. Or uh, they also shocked uh, genitals. Uh, that was John Harvey Kellogg was a big uh, proponent of, of shocking a child's genitals so that they would think that they were uncomfortable and sore and not want to touch them. Wow. You know, mm-hmm. I, I went to the International Mr. Leather Contest last uh, May in Chicago, and they, <laughs> they actually sell, like, little, little My Little Junta uh, genital shocking boxes so that, that turn people on. So <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you think that Kellogg had the opposite effect that he wished to have when he was wiring up people's genitals like some sort of tin pot dictator? I have to think so. I have to think that you have to have some kind of um, weird fascination with – other ways of pleasuring yourself to even come up with some of these treatments. And I use that term loosely. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure there's a subset of the people he tried to treat, though, that thought, hey, all right. Oh, this is awesome. Okay. <laughs> not, not bad. So what else I, you got? Anytime I want to go through this, I need to tell my mother I've been masturbating again and she'll send me here to this, <laughs> this, this medical fetish scene where I get my Sweet. dick wired up. How awesome is that? <laughs> and all Sweet. I have to do great. here is masturbate? This is amazing. <laughs> Better than clicking your heels together three times. <laughs> Um, I actually heard years ago about one treatment for genital warts that, or anal warts that made me have to go lay in a dark room for a half an hour. And I'm wondering if you guys have heard of this, that the Greeks would treat anal warts, which they called anal figs, 
by allowing them to grow large enough uh, and then crushing them between two stones. Oh, oh. oh no. I mean, I, I suppose that would make them smaller. Yeah. That's almost <laughs> they as, might come off. It's almost as bad as what the Romans did with herpes. What did the Romans do with herpes? Uh, well, you would just put a hot iron on any open sores. <sighs> sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think that probably um, Emperor Tiberius was more uh, effective. He just banned kissing. Really? Yeah. It's like like an ancient uh, version of Footloose. He just told all the (laughs) local teens. Yeah, don't spread herpes. Just don't kiss. It was a very everybody had it, so that's the best they could do. (laughs) So uh, Joan Collins was right about ancient Rome. Everyone's just running around covered with syphilis and everything. Exactly. Not to kiss. Are there any other treatments you want to scare people with? And these are. Uh, and do you think there's any treatments currently in use now that you know in 300 years there'll be uh, a doctor hosting a snarky podcast about or whatever <laughs> podcast 300 years from now condemning the treatments that we have now? Well, luckily, luckily, a lot of the um, sexually transmitted infections now are treatable by different antibiotics or antivirals. But uh, we definitely, you mentioned genital warts, and we have many different ways of trying to remove genital warts. I mean, you can you can surgically remove them, but there's freezing them and burning them and applying acid. And I don't know, maybe we'll come up with a, a treatment for the you know virus itself someday that just makes it vanish and the warts vanish instead of... We do have know. a vaccine. So if you're not yet infected, you can get vaccinated. Uh, if Absolutely. Not, if you're not yet sexually active, you can get vaccinated. Everyone out there who can hear my voice should be having their children vaccinated, their girl children and their boy children against the cancer-causing strains of HPV. And the vaccine is safe, safe, safe and really effective. But once you got them, then you're left with burning, freezing exactly, or, or crushing between two stones. Exactly. And you, and you make a, a great point, which is the best way to treat an STI is not to get it in the first place. So get vaccinated or you know, use protection. So you're, you're on Tiberius's side. <laughs> well, I didn't say you can't kiss. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else for us before we go? We found crabs in a mummy. You found crabs in a mummy? <laughs> we didn't. I mean, not personally. Uh, but uh, Sid, you were telling me about the... Uh, yeah, the- uh, crabs have been around. I didn't realize how old this was. I mean, lice have been around a long time, but pubic lice, or, or crabs colloquially, has been around. We, we found them in a 2,000-year-old Chilean mummy. <laughs> wow. So they've been around a really long time. Um but we never had anything particularly creative to do other than put things like tobacco juice or viper broth or bacon grease on them. Wow. Or just shave. Uh, one treatment that I think was horrible was, of course, lobotomizing people who were queer, which used to go on. Yes. Yeah, we, we actually did an episode on uh, lobotomy as well. And it, it's really horrible the way that it was used for uh, people who... Um, all kinds of things, just uh, women as well who didn't obey the rules of society at the time mm-hmm. were sometimes lobotomized. I mean, but absolutely, that that's one of the things we get into a lot is that, as Justin mentioned, oppressed minorities were the victims of all kinds of horrible medical, not treatments. I don't even want to use the word treatments because they weren't, but we called them that. Dr. Sidney and Justin McElroy, hosts of the Medical History Podcast, Sawbones. Go find it on iTunes. It's really hilarious. Uh, thank you guys so much for jumping on the Halloween show to scare people with archaic and outdated medical treatments for sexually transmitted infections. We really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, Dan. My name is Zach. I'm a 27-year-old gay man living in a liberal West Coast city. I have a problem coming when I'm having sex with people. Um, it just doesn't happen. I don't know. Sometimes it's anxiety. Sometimes, like, I'm on the, on the cusp and just can't go over the fall. But I, 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 I've learned to deal with it. 
I mean, I'm more of a top than a bottom, and, and so it's kind of noticeable. I don't know. A lot of the guys that I've dated or even just fooled around with, they seem to be, like, obsessed with me having an orgasm. Like, like it doesn't matter that they had five. They get so obsessed, like, are you going to come? Are you going to come? And the pressure is just that much worse. So lately, I've actually started faking it. I have become quite good at it, actually. My partner, we had a third over, and he didn't realize that I was faking. Uh, <laughs> and I know that you constantly tell women not to fake it for men, that it gives them an unfair idea of their sexual prowess, et cetera, et cetera. But if I'm the top and I'm hammering away at you or whatever, I mean, does it, does it really... Does it really give you an unfair idea of your sexual prowess if I, as the top, fake my orgasm? Does this rule change just because I'm a gay man hooking up with other gay men versus heterosexual women or even lesbian women who shouldn't fake for their girlfriend? The reason we all, all of us, all sex advisors, uh, urge women not to fake orgasms is because women's orgasms are complicated and there are a lot of men out there who have this idea that if you just throw a dick at a vagina that she's going to have an orgasm and it's not true. Women require intense, focused, uh, clitoral stimulation and some effort and going out of your way, most of them, in order to climax. 75-ish percent of women can't climax from vaginal penetration alone. Uh, but women are under tremendous pressure often because they want to cater to this guy's ego to climax during sex. So women will climax or fake it uh, during sex and then this guy will come upon the first women, you know, the first girlfriend and then the guy who every girlfriend he's ever been with has been able to come just from vaginal intercourse. He'd been with 10 girls. They could all do it miraculously enough even though 75 percent of women can't. He managed to get 10 women in bed who could uh, and then he gets to the first girl, first girlfriend who's like, OK, I need you to eat my pussy for a while. Excuse me, but you need to touch my clit and here's my vibrator. And he goes, oh my god, what the fuck is wrong with you? You're damaged. You're gross. I shouldn't have to do anything. And every other woman I've ever been with could do it. And all this kind of guilting and twat shaming, which isn't a thing, but I just coined that term. He throws that at her as if there's something wrong with her vagina and her pussy and her clit. There's something wrong with her genitals because they don't work the way all these other women's genitals have worked. So this is why we tell women not to fake orgasms. First, because a fake one isn't a real one. It isn't an orgasm and you're not going to have as much fun if you prioritize your own pleasure and you advocate for your own pleasure in the moment. You want sex to be rewarding for you too. Um, not that you have to have an orgasm every time either. Uh, so that's why we tell women that. You, I don't think, should have to worry about faking an orgasm. Guys that you fake it with aren't going to then turn around uh, and dick shame or in any way uh, judge or condemn the next guy they're with uh, as if I, – I there's, there's no analogy here. There's, there's, no, there's no parallel you can draw because dicks are simple, right? And you know they did everything that they ought to do uh, and they did it right and they offered their asses up to you and you're a top. Um, but you sometimes have difficulty climaxing and you want to perform for this guy a little bit. You want him to think you came because he's invested in your pleasure. But at a certain point, that can be very annoying. And of course, this is the situation a lot of women find themselves in. The guy's really invested in her getting off and it's important to him and his pleasure and his getting off that she got off so she'll fake it to get him off her back. And that's what you're doing. But the added element there with women faking it is then that guy is going to move on to the next girl with expectations that just throwing a dick into a vagina is enough. And it ain't for 75 percent of women. That's the damage that women faking it can do. Well, 
for almost 100% of gay dudes, throwing a dick into an asshole is going to be enough for him to get off. So that guy that you topped isn't going to leave from your apartment thinking that the guy who's <laughs> that guy that you topped isn't going to leave after the three-way he had with you and your boyfriend with some false impression about how men's bodies work and how men's orgasms work and what's required of him sexually in the moment, the way a guy whose girlfriend or girlfriends, a series of them all faked it with him, would. So you're off the hook. Hey, Dan. I'm in my late 20s, and I had a couple questions about unicorns. Recently started a relationship with a girl who's very GGG. She happens to be bi-curious, at least. I mean, I think she's actually just straight up bi, but she um, tends to gravitate towards being hetero, hence why we're together. Everything's great, and we've been exploring pursuing a unicorn. I'm actually in grad school as well, and I kind of thought a college campus is a great place to try to look for a unicorn. I don't really know how to go about doing it, however, because um, my work and my full-time job and career aspirations, I think, would be possibly negative, negatively impacted by something like a very public or, you know, a, a, a public dating website like OKCupid or something like that. So I'm kind of not sure exactly how to pursue this goal. And we've made a couple half half-hearted attempts in bars, meaning like we've just been playing around with it and we haven't been successful yet. Um, we're both very conventionally attractive people, so I don't think it's that's going to pose an issue. My other thing is uh, I'm wondering, like, when you do do it in person, are you, is it better for the woman to do the approaching or does it matter or does it depend on the type of person that we're talking about? Answering your Last question first. It often is better for the woman to roll it out and do the approach or do the ask because a lot of people out there who encounter heterosexual couples who are looking for a third, looking for that unicorn, looking for that bi girl, uh, they have the impression that the the woman in the couple is doing this reluctantly or that she's somehow been coerced or pressured. And if that's not the case, allowing her to you know roll it out, if that's something that she's comfortable doing, if that's what she wants to do, uh, can assuage those fears, can just nip those in the bud, head them off at the pass. Uh, as for finding a unicorn and how the difficulties you're having, they're called unicorns for a reason. They are hard to find. Mythical beasts. Um, and you're in a position because of where you are on a college campus and you know getting your education and starting out your career where it's difficult for you to be public about this. So that rules out all the dating websites where there might be unicorns trolling around, looking around. Um, so it's going to be a longer and harder slog for you. What you need to do is just be out there in the world, go out, hang out, hang out in – Bars and clubs and be socially active and look around your friendship circles because you never know. Sometimes the best unicorns are people who you already know, not mythical beasts you run out and find. And just be open to possibility and chance. You know, people get, you know, have a couple of drinks in them. They get flirty. Things get said. And then before you know it, you are in bed with somebody uh, that you already knew who was a friend who you didn't realize would be up for this. And they were. They were pining for it. But it's going to take time and it's going to take serendipity. It's going to take kismet. Because you can't do the kind of hunt that others would do online because you can't out yourself about this. Uh, the other bit of advice I always give to couples who are searching for that elusive single bi woman is there are a lot of other couples who are looking for that single elusive bi woman unicorn too. And maybe you should open your minds uh, a bit. And instead of searching for that lone bi woman, you can search for a partnered bi woman 
and then you guys can – the four of you uh, swap unicorns every once in a while. But that's only if you can wrap your head around sharing your partner with another dude and not just sharing your partner with another woman. Dan, I'm a heterosexual male living in Chicago and I have a question. I went to the gym um, and I'm in the locker room and there are three guys in there, me and two other guys in this area changing. I'm dressing and I notice that the guy sitting next to me on a bench, guy number two, we'll call him, is staring at guy number three who's disrobing uh, across from me with his back turned to everybody. And this guy number three, super buff dude and everything, I mean, guy number two is just staring at him longingly and like forever. It doesn't see me see this, though. So, you know, that's okay, right? Guy number two is gay, let's say, and he's checking this other guy out. Here's the question. Why is it fair for gay guys to go into the men's locker room to scope out dudes when I, as a heterosexual guy, would love to go into the women's locker room and check out naked chicks, huh? And you could say, well, lesbians are in the women's locker room too, so that gays and lesbians get an advantage in this world. They are the only people that aren't banned. Hetero people, we're banned from the other locker rooms. Why is this fair, Dan? I mean, maybe it's time now for unisex locker rooms where everybody can just get together in states of nakedness. Seriously, why is this fair? It's not fair. Suck it. There's not a lot of things where the unfairness of the world as it breaks down around sexual orientation lines redounds to the benefit of the tiny minority of the queers. But this is it. This is one of those things and you're just going to have to fucking eat it. This is why gay men go to gyms. This is, this is why straight people – you know, you can't get a gay teenager into a gym in high school and often in college. But try to get a gay adult out of the gym. In adulthood, it's it's nearly impossible. Simon Doonan, who was a guest on the show recently, uh, the writer for Slate, uh, spiritual director of Barney's, um, he has a great chapter in his book, Gay Men Don't Get Fat, which of course is entirely true, um, but uh, about gyms and why gay men go. And he said they go to gossip and they go because we have this benefit, this perk of getting to walk into a locker room. And hopefully, you know, less obviously than the person that you observed, observing that other buff guy, uh, take a look. Take a look. Enjoy the scenery. And this is actually payback for us. This is, this is fair in a way because in high school and in middle school, when we are deeply, deeply closeted, to go into a locker room is a particular kind of hell because the stuff that you would like to look at is all on display for you, age-appropriate display. Hopefully you age up. <laughs> Your tastes continue to uh, rise in age as you rise in age as you, as you grow up. But you know, I remember high school. I remember freshman year of high school and having to look at all these guys who were getting undressed and thinking, I can't, I, I can't look at them. And every fiber of my being wanted my head to like snap and look. I would – my eyes would hurt at the end of the day, at the end of the gym from not looking because I would be forcing my eyes to, to – I would be gripping them to keep them from looking at Bobby, <sighs> right? And then you know you come out and you think, now I'm going to look. Now I'm going to look all I want and then you do. So I consider it sort of reparations for high school. That in adult life, we can go to the gym. Uh, and in adult life, there's this tiny little bit of unfairness that you straight people have to eat, which is that we can go into the locker room and there will be the things that we want to fuck half-dressed and you can't go into the opposite-sex locker room and experience the same sort of ocular delights. 
And, and Simon Doonan in his really terrific book points out that you know one of the reasons so many adult gay men go to the gym is just this this thing that you know you can go to the gym and go to the locker room and there's all these half dressed people that you just saw working out and perhaps more straight guys would go to the gym and fewer would have moobs if they could stroll into the women's locker room and change there but you can't so sad. Hi Dan, I am a 42 year old straight female here in Seattle. Um, I am in a relationship of sorts, kind of a friends with benefits type relationship with a guy that I've been seeing for about six months. We have a great time, um, but there's absolutely no sort of commitment or attachment or anything like that. We just have really great sex together, which is fun for both of us. We've talked about having threesomes and stuff. So a couple weeks ago, um, I said, I'm totally open to this. I don't have time to make the arrangements. I don't know anybody in my personal life who's willing to do it. So you make the arrangements and I'll do it. So we did, but it just kind of, it was very awkward. The person that he chose to join us wasn't someone either one of us knew. Um, It wasn't a great situation, but it wasn't the worst thing ever. Um, But ever since then, things have been really different. Um, He is definitely not responsive to any sort of communication from me. And this was basically his idea. I'm not sure how to approach it because we don't have um, a boyfriend-girlfriend type relationship. Um, It's not really, we don't, you know, hang out together or be like, hey, how was your day very often except for the times that we're together. But I just, I'd like to discuss it without making it a big, huge deal. So any tips on that would be appreciated. Sometimes it feels like most of the advice I give is, hey, why not risk having a conversation with the person with whom you are having uh, sex. You had a three-way with this person. You're clearly uninhibited enough to do that. You're clearly not shut down about that and and you're adventurous. That way you should be as not shut down, uninhibited and as adventurous about having a convo. There was something perhaps about this event that squicked your this guy out. Maybe you know he thought a three-way would be fun and he has some mixed feelings about it. Maybe it's because the other guy's dick was so much bigger than his that now he feels self-conscious that you don't want to – settle for his dick anymore and who knows how he's feeling. I don't and you don't and I don't because I can't read his mind and you don't because you can't seem to bring yourself to risk asking him what's on his mind. Ask him what's on his mind. Call him and say, hey, things have been a little like less chummy and easy breezy since that night. I hope nothing happened. I hope you're not squicked out. I'd still like to see you. Period. The end. And then see what he says. He may come clean and then you can offer him some ego salve reassurance that helps him get over whatever hurt fee-fees he might have as a result of this three-way. It's also possible that just coincidentally that the relationship has run its course and this three-way happened to come right at the finish line. And it's just a coincidence that the three-way happened and the thing sort of came apart at the same time. I think it's less likely to be a coincidence that something as crazy as a three-way and a relationship winding down would happen at the same time. Likelier that he's having some conflicted fifis about it and maybe he's sitting at home thinking, I would love to talk to her about this but that's not what our relationship is about. We don't have these kinds of conversations so I'm just going to sit here and sulk. And so maybe if you initiated that conversation, he would open up to you and then you guys could get back on the FWB track. 
It's almost Halloween. It'll be Halloween in a couple of days, and I expect that is a busy time of year for our guest. Caitlin Doty is a L.A.-based mortician and founder of the Order of the Good Death, a group of alternative funeral professionals, academics, and artists working to bring a positive relationship with death back into our culture. She is also the host of the brilliant and hilarious and insightful and really helpful web series, Ask a Mortician. If you haven't checked out Ask a Mortician, do go to Google right now and look up Caitlin's videos. And she's going to join us by phone right now from L.A., where she's probably at work. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for having me back. How, how old are you? You look really young in your videos. <laughs> I look like a child. Um, I just turned 29. How do you get to be a 29-year-old mortician? I grew up in a very morbid neighborhood in Chicago where there was a Catholic church at one end of the block and a funeral home at the other, and you could live your whole life without leaving that block because you could marry and be baptized and then get buried and with a short trip to the funeral home at the other end. I never saw a mortician ever under 90 and without a penis. Right, and without a penis, yeah. I am, I am neither of those things. Um, yeah, well, you know, you don't actually need that much schooling to be a mortician, so I actually came to it kind of late because I got a, a regular bachelor's degree and then I went back for my mortuary science degree. Um, so there are a lot of, interestingly enough, a lot of the people I went to mortuary school with were like young women of color. Uh-huh. Um, so it's really, the landscape is, and that was in Southern California, but the landscape is really changing. And is that because of that show on HBO? Six Feet Under, yeah. are you referring to? Um, possibly. I don't know. I think also there's just like a really, a lot of women in the alternative funeral industry as well, and young women. So I think that it's just sort of a, it's a, it's a cultural thing. It's a resurgence, and, and death is coming back to the women. <laughs> death is coming back. Um, so w when you say the alternative uh, sort of funeral industry, what is the mainstream industry about that you're an alternative to, the movement that you lead, the Order of the Good Death? Right. So the mainstream at this point is uh, it's, it's embalming. It involves you know chemical preservation of the corpse. It's traditional burial in a big vault in a cemetery, or what's called direct cremation, which is just cremate them, get them out of sight, no service, no anything. Mm -hmm. um, so the alternative funeral industry is really about bringing not only the corpse back into culture, so like home funerals where the family takes care of the dead body, it's also about green burial. It's also about, hey, decomposition is okay, going straight back into the earth is okay, we don't need these heavy caskets and, and chemical preservation and all this rigmarole. We can just be comfortable with, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. What inspired you to start Ask a Mortician? You started this Ask a Mortician uh, YouTube series and it just took off and it's insanely popular. And what inspired you to do that? Yeah, I think that uh, I, there's just a lot of misconceptions about things, and there's a lot of fear of death. And I think that me being young and being uh, hopefully friendly um, is sort of a is kind of an easy way to get people into thinking about their own mortality. Because if I'm on the screen and I'm like, "Hey, death is actually really interesting and fun, guys," then it's kind of the thing that that allows people to go further and hopefully be a little more comfortable asking questions about you know, what they think is going to happen when they, die, when they die and what's going to happen to their body and what's uh -huh. going to happen to their estate and their family and, and just sort of opening up that, that dialogue. You do for death what I do for sex. Sex Hopefully, is scary. People have questions. Be, I, I try to answer be, them. Death is scary no. and people have questions and you try to answer them. 
mm, sex is scary and people have questions and you know yeah it's the same. I mean sex and death are so intertwined as far as you know they, they sort of just go back and forth as to which one is the cultural taboo at any time mm-hmm. um, so there's just there's just huge connections between and I'm, I've really been surprised at how um, how interested people in the sex community are about this movement and vice versa so there's just a ton of crossover what are your typical questions like um, well, they, they range from like very simple, like what is embalming to, you know, can I keep grandma's head on the skull? Can I have a Viking funeral where I'm set a, set a light and sent out to sea? And, you know, it, it, it varies, but some people have a lot of really creative ideas that they think that they don't really have an outlet for, or they don't know if it's legal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's where a lot of questions come from. Can you have a Viking funeral? Well, actually, the thing is that the Vikings never actually did that. Oh. Your body, your body doesn't get if you just set a body on fire on a ship, it doesn't get hot enough to cremate it by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination for a long enough period of time. So what you end up with is just like a bobbing, you know, corpse charred like you end up thing. With barbecue bobbing around. Yeah, yeah, like leftover barbecue <laughs> is what you end up with. So not the romantic thing that you think it is. Oh, that's too bad. Who started wah, wah. that? Who started that Viking funeral myth? Then film, television, Hollywood. Yeah, surprise, surprise. So you said you know there's a relationship between sex and death, coming and going, as I like to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking on the show recently about people who get aroused at, in random places for no reason that seems to make any sense, no connection to that place, like the back of a cab or the, a school bus. Are funeral homes arousing for some people? Are funerals arousing for some people? I think of Harold and Maude. Which yeah, really yeah. Dates I me. Think, yeah, we actually had a we had a big conference in LA this weekend called Death Salon, and we had a, a dominatrix speak on um, on one of the panels named Snow Mercy, and she was talking about necrophilia play and how people really enjoy and, and but necrophilia and that sort of arousal has a lot to do with people who are turned on by not having to perform. Mm-hmm. Or fear of having to perform, so it's not some or fear or like inter- interest in control in that way. So it's not so much that it's like, oh yeah, dead body. It's that okay, if I have sex with a dead body, they're not judging me, they're not turning me away, they're not rejecting me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really more about that probably than it is so much like fetishizing the actual corpse, which is kind of gross, honestly. And I've certainly never been turned on by by one. Sometimes I have a hard time getting turned on by a live person. I couldn't imagine getting turned (laughs) on by a dead person. So I wanted to throw down with you because you answer death questions, I answer sex questions, but you're on my show. You're you're on my turf. You're in my house now. You're in my house now, and it's not a funeral home. It's a fucking sex party here on the 23rd floor of the Washington Mutual Building, beautiful downtown Seattle. Uh, So we're going to throw some sex questions your way, and you're going to get to try out this uh, sex advice thing. Don't be nervous. The only qualification you need to give advice is somebody asked you for it, and we're asking you for it. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it my best. Hi, Dan. I've got a question about how to bring up changing terms of a relationship. I'm a 32-year-old married bisexual slash straight girl living in the South. I was with my husband from the age of 19. He's six years older, dated for five years, got married, and we've been through a lot in the past almost decade and a half. I'm starting to notice a pattern of a need for outside sexual encounters, and it happens every couple of years. It becomes like a compulsion almost. Knowing now what I know about myself, and from what I've learned listening to your show, I shouldn't have gotten married at 24 without first implementing accommodations for a monogamish arrangement. But I didn't. And because of this lack of personal understanding and acceptance and lack of knowing about alternative relationship styles, I have been a CPOS in the past. I don't want to cheat and I hate myself afterwards, but my past mistakes never seem to dissuade me from doing it again. 
when I'm caught up in that infatuation with another person. I love my husband, don't want to divorce him ever. So first part, I want to bring up the possibility of changing our arrangement, but I don't know how. In the past, when I have asked him to think about trying out a monogamous arrangement, the answer has been no, and it turns into a fight and hurt feelings. His answer is that he doesn't want to sleep with anyone else. He admits attractions to others, of course, but wants me and only me forever. That's great, but I want him sometimes, and sometimes I want other people, guys or gals. Um, He's okay with a girl in the room, but it would have to be a threesome, not me and the girl alone time. So I've never really gotten to explore that by side of myself yet. Another guy then, threesome or not, would be out of the picture. Second part, I'm infatuated again, and I have a chance to bang this hot, muscular, 20-something dude with gorgeous blue eyes. And I want permission, not sneaking around. I don't want to cheat again, but I just know my pattern. What should I do? All right, Caitlin, what should she do? Oh, yeah, yeah, throw it to me first. (laughs) Um, Well, she mentioned, I think, that he would consider a threesome with another girl and maybe, like, ease him into it, like, maybe start there, like, having one potato chip, and he'll be like, more, and it will just, like, open the Pandora's box of all his secret open relationship desires. Mm -hmm. But at least it gets the forward momentum so they're not stuck and she's not cheating when she feels like it. And she is cheating. She says that every couple of years she's banged somebody else. There's somebody right now she would like to bang. Uh, you did really well, Caitlin, I have to say. That was going to be my advice. Uh, stuff the previous um, you know, infidelities down the old memory hole and roll out a three-way, not with the hot, muscular, blue-eyed dude because right. her husband isn't into having three-ways with dudes, but have that three-way with a bi-chick and have him see what's in it for him, a little monogamishamy, a little openness. And then if he, you know, a lot of times people will start out who end up being in totally open relationships. It'll begin with a couple of three ways where then somebody's fears about seeing their partner with somebody else aren't realized. They see that this is not about love, that this is about intimacy and fun and friendship and something else that sex can do, but not about the same level of commitment or bond or affection or love. And then it's suddenly much less threatening after they've actually laid eyes on the reality of what it can be to have that outside sexual contact. And then, you know, they gradually loosen up and lighten up and you end up getting the permission that you might need to do what you want to do, caller, which is to do somebody else every once in a while on your own. Right. And she's got to, she's got to do the work and lay the groundwork as well, just mm-hmm. like he does. And I mean, I do, I do feel for her. Like, as I get older, if someone is not willing to talk openly about relationship boundaries and how we're moving forward, it's just not going to work. But I was totally not there in my early 20s, when, which is when she got married, I think. Yeah. So this I, told, is why... I mean, I feel, I mean it, doesn't, it doesn't excuse that she's cheating when she wants to, but like, I, I feel for her. At the same time, and I'm, I'm so glad that I did not get married in my early 20s. Yeah. And this is why she says, you know, if I knew now, if I knew, totally. then, if I knew then what I know about myself now, I wouldn't have married without hammering out this kind of agreement in advance. It's mm-hmm. so important to know yeah, who you really, are yes. sexually before you make, before you lock in some sort of commitment that says, I will always be who I was at 22. I promise. I will always want the things I wanted at 22. I promise. For the next six decades, I will not change. I will not evolve. I'm not grow sexually. We are going to be frozen in place. Nobody is frozen in place forever who, at, at who they were 22 sexually. Yeah. And you, you can be like, I promise to be who I am right now. And that's not kind of all you can promise. And I promise to grow with you as a person. And we'll have this conversation every, you know, all the time. You mm-hmm. have to check in with your relationship with Beth 
every couple months and you have to check in with your relationship with sex every couple of months and make sure it's still fresh and that everybody's on the same page. And Okay, let's, let's help me out here. How do I check in with my relationship with death? What am I supposed to do with death? I think, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes you will, you just think about because what I, I think I think I'd like to have an open relationship with death where I'm, yeah. allowed, I'm allowed to see <laughs> other people. Should. I think everyone should. You know, death, uh, death a, I know, a I'm not into you tonight, death. Please go away. Tonight's not the <laughs> night that I would like to die. I would like to actually fuck my husband, death. Please go away. Right. Well, that's—I mean—that's the thing—is that if you if you have an open relationship with that, you can fuck your husband without the guilt of like it hanging over you, or the fear, more likely, of it hanging over you. And just just check in with it in the sense that you you what was that? What are your fantasies? Like, what are your fantasies in the sense of like what you want for a good death? What are your fears? Are you do you think that you're going to get cancer all of a sudden and have four months to live? Do you think oh. that your husband's going to die in a in a car accident? And see that through emotionally. See what, don't just get in the fear loop where you just think about the horrible thing happening, but actually get into like, okay, see, this would be what the funeral was like. This is what I would have to do in the aftermath. And that's really difficult emotionally, that but is. it moves you through, but it moves you through to a place where you can say, okay, if the worst happens, I know what I'm going to do. And it's not just a fear loop that's hanging over you. It's a sense of, yeah, life gets real and it's going to be terrible no matter what when it happens, but... I'm 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 comfortable with it, and I I know that I can handle it. I'm I'm bad then. I am not of the order of the good death because every time I <laughs> contemplate, even for a second, my life continuing after Terry's, I can't handle it. I lose my mind. You gotta move. You gotta move through. It. You gotta stay with it. And it, you know, you may be in a corner, like in a ball, you know, weeping to the high heavens, but you have to stay with it, and you have to stay with it and move through it, as opposed to just immediately getting afraid and backing away from it emotionally. How did we get onto this subject from this woman? <laughs> I think I think banging. open relation. I think uh, threesomes is how we got onto oh, okay. the subject. Is, is that often a pivot for people in your in your practice? <laughs> they pivot from threesomes to their partners dying. Right. Well, I, I mean, I always I, since I you know see the world through death colored glasses, <laughs> I probably always bring it back there. Were you a morbid kid? I think I think all kids are morbid. I think all kids have a fascination with the morbid, and then we kind of tell them that it's not okay. Hmm. And so the things that they were curious about or the fact that they can see a dead bird and be like, yep, it's a dead bird. That's interesting. I want to touch it. You know, and then we're like, no, that's gross. It's dirty. It's dangerous. Don't you have those thoughts? And, you know, we sort of inherit our parents' fears in that way. All right. Let's take another call. Hi, Dan. My name's Hillary, and I'm a 24-year-old straight female. I'm calling because I'm really picky when it comes to dating, and I mean really picky. I'm a full-figure girl, and I like a guy big and tall enough to make me feel small and feminine, but that's not all. I also openly refuse to date Republicans. My family thinks it's weird, and when I tell other people this, they think I'm kidding, but I'm a pretty hardcore Democrat, and though I know it sounds elitist and shitty, I question the intelligence of any man who wants to put his dick in my box, but who also thinks I shouldn't have the right to take an unwanted fetus out of it. I'm really into politics and foreign affairs, And I've actually broken up with the guy before because he wasn't registered to vote and was just completely aloof to politics. My question here is, am I being unrealistic in wanting to be in a relationship with a guy who respects me and my political views? Why is a 250-pound, six-and-a-half-foot straight liberal man so goddamn hard to find? All right, Caitlin, number two, where do you find great, big, tall, hefty, bearish, straight liberal Democrats? 
I mean, I feel like wanting a Democrat is fair enough, and I would hold out for a non-Republican. Um, but I actually take issue with not wanting shorter men. I'm six one, um, and I've been all about shorter men as of late. And the cultural norm is like a big man and like a little ingenue woman. But since I grew up so tall, if you can pair it with a man who grew up a little short, you both kind of know what it's like to be outside culture size expectation, and that actually makes it really hot. And whenever I see like a tall man with a short or a tall woman with a short man, I'm like, you are so rad, and I bet that you have the best sex. Um, and I think that she should get over that before she gets over her need to have a Democrat. Because that, that's fair enough. Holy okay. crap. You should totally be doing a sex advice program. Because that is, that is not what I would have busted out. But that is some impressive advice. That was, really? that well, was amazing. Because you totally talked about it. life, man. It's from living my life. The cultural biases around like short guys. Sometimes you hear from short guys who say, you know, all women want to date up in height. They want mm-hmm. somebody who's like two or three inches taller than they are. And you hear from like tall women that they're screwed because there's, oh, there's only so many six foot six guys in the world. And mm-hmm. you hear from short guys that women won't date them. And, or, you know, women of all sizes won't date them. And that was just a genius response, Caitlin. I'm just going to bow to yeah. you. I'm not even going to elaborate on that. I'm just going to let that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, mean, I remember being younger and you would see, you know, like a guy who's six six with a girl who's like 5'2", and I'd be like, oh, I fucking hate you. I can't believe you took my man, you know. <laughs> and now I'm like, especially being with shorter men, I'm just like, first of all, this is great. And second of all, if you can own being with someone who's that size, you can own anything in your life. And you can just go out there and and not give a shit what people think and be with someone who loves you and adores you and makes you feel beautiful. Well, what about about her need to feel petite? Like, is that her just swallowing the cultural biases against women of size, tall women, heavier women? Is she still tapped into that somehow that she wants to be with somebody who wipes that away for her? Yeah, which is fair enough, which is totally fair enough. I mean, those cultural biases are, like, strong. Those are real strong. And, uh, you know, I, if I'm with a shorter man, I have to know he's not going to be able to, like, scoop me up in his arms and take me over the threshold. But, well, first of all, I mean, everyone's the same height lying down. Um, and also, like, in some ways, because they know what it's like to be not what culture expects of them size-wise, they really have a sense of how to, how to make you feel beautiful and how to make you feel protected in a weird way. And you can tell that they're proud, to, because a lot of short guys like being with tall women, mm-hmm. and they feel kind of even prouder of you, than a, and prouder of being with you, which feels really good as a woman. So just to recap, so, your advice is stick to your guns on the liberal dem, don't fuck Republicans, but you need to fuck men of all heights, and you will yeah, find short, the right... short Democrats are okay, tall Republicans are not... <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I, I hope that she gets the tall Republican or the tall Democrat if that's what she really wants. You know, like you know, her mouth to God's ears. But and you know, she could meet a tall Republican and gradually fuck some sense into that man. She could bring him it, around. It's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, if, if if we could only fuck sense into all Republicans, if only that was a cultural program. That's the next. It gets better. That's your big next cultural campaign. <laughs> it gets some sense fucked into it. That's what we'll call it. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. Hey, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old lawyer in Chicago, and uh, I just forced a really awkward social interaction that kind of came about organically, and I'm wondering if it's apology-worthy or how embarrassed I should be about this. I went on a few dates with a guy from OkCupid who kept on following up and saying he was interested and how attractive I was and what a good time he had with me, but then would say he's so busy and... I went out of town and he went out of town and it's a month later and I run into him at a bar and 
he's drinking alone and I'm with like 20 attractive lawyer friends. So I approached him and, you know, we had half an hour of small talk and I sort of asked him if he was interested or not in going out again. And he said, yes, and gave qualifiers. And I said, like, about he was so busy. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to read that a signal that you're not interested. If you can't just say you're interested, keeping on saying that you're busy is not really an appropriate thing to do. I think the social courtesy is to tell me you're not interested. That's fine. And he became nonverbal and very angry and super awkward. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to run into him in the future. And I'm wondering whether I should hedge this off with an apology what's the protocol for when you run into someone who tells you that they're interested but acts otherwise? I have a theory about questions like this when people are dumped wrong that, you know, you can't just say you're interested and then not call me. You can't fade away. You have to be honest and tell me that you're not interested. Be straight up with me because I really think that in most cases if that person called you and said, I am not interested, that you would get upset about that too because nobody wants to be dumped one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But I also don't think that she needs to apologize to him the next time she sees him. Why? Okay, so, so there was a, there was a, there's a column on The All called Ask Polly. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Mm-hmm. But in, this week it was basically about, like, saying fuck off to tepid, like, lukewarm men. And, like, one, if he doesn't like you, you know, it's either two things. Like, one, he either doesn't like you at all or is not into it, in which case, like, fuck off to him, you're amazing, and you should be with someone who wants to be with you. Or two, he's, like, so lukewarm because he's just, like, not ready for a relationship and he's not sure where things are going, in which case, fuck off again. Like, you don't have time for him to figure it out. Um, So I just think she needs to not, like, the the level that she's worried about his reaction and worried about what she's going to say to him the next time, like, she's just putting way too much effort into somebody who doesn't want to be with her. Do you think she was right to approach him and say, what the fuck, dude? I don't know. I, I've, I've been in the situation where I think, like, if you go out on a couple of dates and he just disappears, I think that's fair. I don't think that, you know, she needs to follow up on that. I think that's fair enough on his part, and he shouldn't have to say, like, spell it out for her. Because that's, a, that's a kind in. of communication. That's nonverbal yeah, communication. Kind of communications. Yeah, it's a nonverbal communication. Yeah, specifically nonverbal, as in there's not. <laughs> But there are situations where men clearly just want to keep you around, so they'll give you just enough. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll give you, like, you were so amazing, I can't wait to see you again. Or they'll, you know, text you something sweet a couple of times a week or something just to, like, keep you on the hook. So if they decide that they want to have sex with you later, or they decide they want to revisit later, they can do that. In which case, like, yeah, I think that's pretty shitty. And she has a right to say, you know, don't string me along like that. After a couple of dates, if you decide you're not into it, just either say something or say nothing. But don't keep dropping the little hints, which keep me in this emotional frenzy over a period of time. God, men are pigs. They, well, you know, sometimes they are not short men. <laughs> short men rule the world. Yeah, exactly. They're Maybe awesome. that's just my personal opinion at at the mo. But yeah, that's. Uh... How tall is your boyfriend at the moment? Um, I'm actually not seeing someone at the moment. Oh, I'm, you're just uh, you're chewing your way through all the short men of Los Angeles. <laughs> Mortician, heal thyself. <laughs> so, Caitlin, before we let you go, any advice for people on is there a particular way they can celebrate Halloween that works to bring a positive relationship with death back into the culture? Any Halloween specific advice? 
Oh yeah, well look into the, look into the history of Halloween. It's totally like like Valentine's Day. It's totally a death centric holiday. It's totally about old death cultures and rituals. Um, so instead of just wearing like the slutty Halloween costume, which is fun, um, you know, look into the history and sort of reflect on that, and you know, drop those fun facts at parties. And where can they find out about the history? Have you done an Ask a Mortician about it? Uh, yeah, I have done. I do, did Ask a Mortician Halloween episode, which they definitely can find, or they can just, you know, Google it. And there's always, you know, there'll be a BuzzFeed article about it for sure. Caitlin Doty, she is the L.A.-based mortician and founder of the Order of the Good Death, which is a group of alternative funeral professionals and academics and artists working to bring a positive relationship with death back into the culture. She's also the host of the amazing web series Ask a Mortician. You can find her and more about her movement and all of her videos at orderofthegooddeath.com. Caitlin, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us. Thank you, Dan. And happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you, too. Hey, Dan. My name is Jacob. I'm a 25-year-old gay man, and this is more of a relationship question than a sexual nature. But you talk a lot on the show about how gay men can become like sisters with their girlfriends, and I, I identify with that a lot with my roommate that I live with. I'm with my two roommates. I live with. They're both. Uh, they're both girls in their twenties, and uh, we live together. And I, I just feel like I'm having my first real history fight with one of them uh, in our six-year relationship, and it has to do with her uh, taking pictures and videos of me in this. She, we're both. We're all both. We're both actors, so we're we like to be artsy. But she's she's really getting into this idea of taking videos of me when I, when I don't know that I'm being filmed and she likes to take photos of me, like catching me off guard videos of me. And then she says that she keeps them safe, but she, I know she does show them like to, like she showed them to her new boyfriend before I even met the guy and she was showing footage of me that I did not want shown to the world. And she puts this lovingness to it. She says, it's all, you know, I love you and I'm not abusing it. And it's, it's cute. You shouldn't get worried about it, but it still makes me anxious. And I actually, for the first time last night, we were doing a Snapchat thing, and I thought she was taking a photo. That was my mistake because she was taking video. So there was video of me being taken. When I thought it was a picture, and of course that caught me off guard, off guard again. And I wanted to assert myself, so I said. So I, I left. I left the situation. We were going to watch a movie, and I chose not to watch the movie, and I went for a walk. Part of me thinks that I could get all legally and pop up my chest and say, no, you can't take photos and videos of me all the time like this. And then part of me also knows, well, she really is like one of your best friends, and maybe I should just lighten up and let her do these weird video experiments on me. This modern world is filled with idiots with cameras because everybody has a camera on them wherever they go. I am old enough to remember a time that if you wanted to have a camera, you had to go get one and take it someplace with you. Uh, And if you wanted to take a picture, that required film and film was expensive and you had to have it developed and it was a huge pain in the ass. And now everywhere you go, every idiot has a fucking camera. Uh, And people have it in their heads because of Instagram and because of tweeting pictures and because of new social mores that they have some sort of constitutional right to document everything that goes on around them and to take other people's pictures. And some people don't like having their pictures taken all the time. I don't like having my picture taken. So 
Caller, I feel your pain. It sounds like you would like to have your picture taken if you knew your picture was being taken. But this surreptitious filming and photo taking annoys the fuck out of you. And that it's a friend who's annoying you thusly, annoying the fuck out of you with her camera, uh, doesn't make it okay. And you need to speak up for yourself. You need to say to her, stop fucking taking my picture. It actually drives me up the fucking wall. You feel like you can't say that because she's your friend. And hopefully she, as your friend, feels like she wouldn't want to drive you up the fucking wall and annoy you because you're her friend and she doesn't want to annoy her friends. And she may think she's being cute and funny. Tell her to knock it the fuck off if it annoys you so much. Hey, Dan. I'm a 20-year-old bi female, and I have a question about interacting with my boyfriend's family. When we met, he was still with his fiancé-slash-baby-mama, and he was miserable. We started dating shortly after he broke it off with her, and she moved into his parents' house with the baby. We tried to keep it under wraps for a while, but we live in a small town, and it wasn't long before she found out about me. A couple weeks after we had started dating, I was over at his place. She came over to grab a movie or something, and when she saw that I was there, she was very upset. She left and came back with his sister and mother, the latter of which proceeded to yell in my face that I'm a crack whore, that I'm nothing but a vagina to him, that I've been cheating with him for months, some real Jerry Springer shit. It's been about six months since that went down, and I've had no contact with his family or baby mama. However, my boyfriend is hoping that I'll get invited to some holiday events since my parents just moved out of state. Next week is his son's first birthday, and I made him an adorable hat that I put a lot of love and a lot of hours into. I was going to have my boyfriend tell his ex that he bought it at a shop downtown, but I'm feeling more and more like I should take credit for it because I'm desperate for a chance to not be the crack whore, but I'm afraid she may refuse the gift. What do you think, Dan? Take credit for a nice thing or stay silent? Your boyfriend sounds like a real winner. Gotta say, his mother and sister come over to his apartment and berate his girlfriend and call her a crack whore, and you don't mention him coming to your defense or speaking up for you or advocating for you at all? And this is a problem for you to solve, how you are being treated by his family, by his parents, by his siblings. That's something you're supposed to fix somehow magically with, with hats and good behavior. No, 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 no. If he loves you, if he wants to be in a relationship with you, he needs to go to his family and say, you will treat – I'm sorry it didn't work out with the person with whom I have made a baby or what you call a baby mama. Uh, but this is the person I'm with now and you need to treat her with respect because she is my partner and we are together. Period. The end. And if you cannot treat my current partner with respect, irrespective of your feelings about my previous partner who you are stepping up for and housing with my child, which is itself a little fucked up, um, then I'm not coming around for Christmas and we're going to make our own plans. Period. The end. You might have to suck it up this year though. This year may be a little too soon. You're only six months into this relationship. You're Boyfriend's son is an infant. Uh, the wounds are open and raw. His ex is living with his family. It might be difficult for you to come around this year. You might want to be the grown-up this year and say, this year I'll take a pass. This year I'm going to be considerate and take one for the team and be a little self-sacrificing and go home for a couple hours, go home, hang out with you, see your family, see your kid – and then uh, let's make some special plans of our own. And you might have to suck it up. And and that sort of consideration, that giving on your part might demonstrate to his family that you are indeed not a Springer-esque crack whore who's going to throw down about your rights and the respect to which you're entitled at six months. But a year from now, when next the next holidays roll around and you two are still together because you're not a crack whore and because he's a wonderful guy whose ex-girlfriend and his baby live with his parents, then I think he needs to go in swinging. In your defense and you have a right at a year and a half 
to expect to be treated uh, decently and equally by his family. And if they're not treating you that way and he's not advocating for you, he's not demanding that they treat you with respect and they treat you decently, then he isn't the guy that you think he is. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at Rescues. I'm 33, straight and divorced and have a preschooler. I was raised in a very close and traditional Christian home and my divorce three years ago was really a scandal. However, my overbearing mother was very supportive in the divorce. She's always been willing to help with my son. They're very close. After the divorce, I broadened my horizons a bit. I wasn't a virgin when I got married, but my ex-husband was the only man I had slept with. I discovered dating, casual sex, swinging, threesomes, and luckily your column. I have been dating my boyfriend for a year now, and we are in a very serious, committed, monogamish relationship. He lives about an hour away in the next state, and our plan is to eventually move down there someday. We dated several months before he even met my son, and we have been very careful to do what's best for my son. He loves us both, and we're hoping to make a family together. My problem is my mother. Eight months ago, she discovered I had stayed the night at his place and has totally exploded into hateful, self-righteous judging. I wasn't raised like that, she said. She has basically disowned me, disowning her 33-year-old daughter over straight premarital sex. She doesn't have a clue about the swinging or bringing a girl home. All she knows is about my committed one-year relationship. She can't accept I found happiness in a relationship that's not, you know, doesn't fit her standards. I really believe a lot of her issue is that I would be moving my son and myself, and she wouldn't get to see my son as much as she wants. I love my life, Dan. I'm excited about my future, and she is doing everything in her power to slut shame me whenever she can. It makes her cry to think that I take my son down there with me for a weekend where the three of us spend the weekend together. I have been so ashamed of her and her actions. Now that I've been on the receiving end, I can see her true colors. I never knew my Christian loving mother could be so cold and heartless. I know you would tell me to stay away from her, that my only leverage is my presence in her life. And that comes at the cost of alienating myself from the rest of my family, which I would do. I believe it's worth the relationship that I'm in now. But it also comes at the cost of my son's relationship with his grandparents. He adores them. He and my dad are very close. My dad, he doesn't like the premarital sex sins that are going on. He does have issue with that, but he's not going to disown me. On the other hand, he hasn't been successful at talking any sense into my mom. But the point is, how could I sever ties from a boy and his grandparents? How can I explain to a four-year-old that I won't take him to see his grandparents because I'm not sorry about my relationship. I want very much to do what's best for my son. I want him to see the rest of his family, but I just can't stand the behavior from my mom. I can't take it anymore. What should I do? If I were in your shoes, I think this is what I would do. I would go to mom or have an intermediary go to mom. Maybe you have a sibling. And I would say to my mom, you know, at some point uh, with the relationship that I'm in now, I believe that the sex that we are having will soon be post-marital sex, the kind of sex you can wrap your head around and approve of. 
in the interim, though, this freakout from you about straight adult non-married persons being sexually active, which is so common, uh, is going to destroy our relationship. So the relationship that we could have once our sex is sanctified in your eyes in the future is in peril because of the current fucking freakout. Not only your relationship with me but your relationship with your grandson. And then shift the focus without your kid there to your kid and say we have to as adults agree to disagree about this. But it is in the best interest of this child that he see that we can still be civil to each other, still get along and that he can still have a relationship with his grandparents and that all that requires is for you to do what so many millions of parents have done, billions of parents have done, pretend not to know something that you damn well do know, that your kid is sexually active. And we don't have to talk about it. We don't have to unpack it. I'm sorry it's a disappointment to you. I'll take it up with Jesus when I'm dead. Maybe you can put a good word in for me if you get there first, which you will because I'm going to kill you if you keep this up. And then if mom can't deal, if mom is just going to be on a little jihad for the rest of her life about what's going on in or around or near your vagina, then you say to your kid, you know, we're probably not going to see very much of grandma for a while. Grandma's having, grandma's having a problem and grandma and I are having a conflict. A kid can wrap their head around that. It's sad. It is sad. And your kid will be deprived of something that he values, not because of anything you've done, but because your mother is crazy. Because as the man said, good people will do good. Irregardless of religion, evil people will do evil with or without religion. But to get good people to do evil, to get people to turn on their own children like this, that takes religion. Maybe mom will get over it. But you have to use what leverage you have, which again, as you said, throwing my words back at me, is your presence in her life and your son's presence in her life. And you can say to dad, come on over, dad. Whenever you want to see him, you come hang out. But mom is being so toxic and so judgy and so horrible that I can't see mom right now and I can't see I can't I, I I wouldn't if I were in your shoes feel like I could leave my kid in my mother's company unchaperoned lest my mother start going off to this 4-year-old about what a whore you are in her eyes you don't want that you don't want your mother poisoning your son's mind with her fucking tantrum about you being that most common of 30 something adult things the sexually active dating person and props to you for waiting months and months before you rolling out this new man to your son uh, and taking that slow and, and being very gradual. It sounds like you're doing everything right. And doing everything right might mean rolling your mother out of your life for a while until she comes to her senses. But you can include your dad. Include your dad on your own terms at your own place. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about your response to the guy who was asking about online dating and disclosure and open relationships. I have been an online dater myself in the past. Um, I'm not anymore. I'm monogamous and, and married. But I have to say that after years and years and years of being online and dating and looking for a potential partner, you may not be aware that women get bombarded with requests from guys who are already in relationships. Bombarded. And there's so many guys who are in relationships who want a third or um, an open person or a unicorn or whatever that it gets exhausting. And by by telling this guy that he should not disclose until after a date or a couple of dates, for a lot of women, you're asking, what you're asking is to waste their time. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in reference to episode 365. I'm a straight-acting gay man, I'll refer to as alone in L.A. 
After listening to his call again, I think a part of what he's searching for is how to meet other men interested in the activities that he enjoys himself. My advice to Alone in LA would be to find the gay softball teams, hiking groups, or any other number of straight-acting activities that are offered in large cities. He may find other men who like the same types of activities he likes and realize he's not the only gay guy who's into dude stuff. I've met some lovely men through these types of organizations, and just like there's a fetish for everything, I'm sure there's a gay men's activity group for everything. I recognize that he could perpetuate internalized homophobia by finding other men who view themselves similarly. However, I feel there are enough amazing men in these types of organizations that he may also learn he can be butch, queen, and still be a man. Hey, Dan. This is a, a straight man from New Jersey saying gay marriage was just legalized in New Jersey. Congratulations for all of our gay friends. We love you guys, and we're, we're glad we're making headway on this. And we're going to leave it there. And thanks, as always, to all of you wonderful subscribers to the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. We are just starting out Season 16, and we know, we hope it's going to be a good one, and we thank you for your support. One more thing I wanted to plug, and it's not my thing, and it's a free thing. Uh, There's a new app out. It's a sex-positive, shame-free sex education smartphone app created by the University of Oregon Health Center. It's called Sex Positive. You can find it at the App Store. It's also available for Android, and it's really entertaining and really smart and really funny and really informative, and I would urge you all to go check it out. That's Sex Positive, a shame-free sex education smartphone app from the University of Oregon Health Center. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Caitlin Doty on Twitter at TheGoodDeath. The number once again, 206-201-2720. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.